0: I'm Thanasi Kambanis. Welcome to Order from Ashes, the Foreign Affairs podcast at the Century Foundation. Today, I'm joined by Peter Schwartstein, an independent researcher and fellow at the Center for Climate and Security. Uh, Peter is on the line with me from Athens, Greece. Peter, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Peter has recently led an initiative on nature and national security, which put together a a bunch of researchers uh, to talk about a burgeoning crisis, environmental crisis in the Middle East and its security implications and implications for US policy. Peter, you have a a real sort of front row seat to a slow moving environmental apocalypse, uh, which I think you argue has a lot of consequences in every sphere of life, including security. Can you quickly, uh, to set the scene, paint for us a picture of what, what is the scope of this crisis in the Middle East, this environmental crisis?
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's kind of even for, for people who, who live and work up close um, in, in the Middle East, it's sort of difficult to sort of fully do justice to the uh, ways in which the region's environment is crumbling. Uh, you have in in some places sort of desert that is advancing uh, at up to sort of 100 meters a year, like truly sort of dramatic uh kind of areas in in, in which the sahara is just sort of eating into relatively scarce um green belt you have temperatures that are already um uh, sort of pretty inhospitable in in much of the region that get that little bit hotter on a year-by-year basis thereby kind of contributing to the the sheer difficulty of life um you can you can basically break down these difficulties into sort of two um compartments w- one of which are are sort of problems that arise uh, out of kind of governance failure in the region. You have kind of tremendous uh, air quality issues in, in cities from Cairo to Baghdad to Beirut, much of which is a consequence of just sort of extremely poorly regulated uh, industrial and, and uh, domestic emissions, uh, and uh, as well as sort of extremely high levels of, of water pollution in, in practically every regional waterway. Uh, and then you have the problems arising out of climate change, um, a, a phenomenon that for the most part Uh, is not the responsibility of the region's non-energy producers. However, this sort of um, kind of potent mixture of uh, sea level rise, increasing temperatures, uh, ever worsening dust storms is combining with those sort of direct consequences of poor governance to just contribute to um, hazardous and and increasingly unlivable conditions for, for many of the region's people. How
0: much of a of an emergency has this become? Because in, in in a lot of these in a lot of regions of the world, we've been hearing warnings for at least my entire lifetime about the uh essentially the claim that soon, sooner rather than later, life will become unlivable uh in some, in, in this belt of, of areas that are most affected by environmental degradation. Are we there now? Or are we at a point where it actually is going to become uh, impossible to live or impossible to live with uh, current levels of life expectancy and health in in these countries?
1: I mean the short answer to that is is yes I mean the, the Middle East is a geographically uh, large country with an enormous array of landscapes and climates. Um, however in some of the uh, hottest and most inhospitable of those climates I'm thinking of kind of parts of southern Iraq and Iran for example, you already have summertime conditions, that are so hot that even the sort of hardiest of residents can can barely survive. I mean, I've I've interviewed family members of um, uh, of sort of day laborers and farmers who've, who've dropped dead or um, uh, become very seriously sick on account of, of the heat and the heat alone. And we're talking we're talking young men here. I mean, in many ways, it's a sort of a case of of a, a frog in a in a in a sort of boiling cauldron. Like every year conditions get that little bit trickier with sort of the occasional bit of, of relief here or there um, and so for, for those who, who kind of live these conditions on a day-to-day basis it can be extremely difficult to sort of um, s- sort of see the perhaps the dividing line between just about hospitable and and utterly intolerable um, however the the stats do, do not lie they show consistent warming uh, when and sort of added to that sort of pre-existing uh, degree of, of sort of unaccommodating weather um that's just sort of taking taking the region in in places that uh, no one wants it to go in
0: so the the and and I, and I just want to press you on this because you you know we've you've been talking at a sort of meta level um and I want you to 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 elaborate a little bit on the human impact in terms of of, of health, quality of life. Uh, I don't know, you know, what other what other indicators you've looked at, but I, I'm assuming infant mortality and and life expectancy and and chronic disease are uh, exacerbated by this degradation. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of for the hundreds of millions of people who live in in this belt that's at a sort of edge of climate uh, and misgovernance stress, uh, what what are the consequences for, for them as as people?
1: Certainly. I mean, when it comes to sort of looking at the sort of day-to-day lives of, of people in the region, the, the, the group of, of folks who are perhaps most acutely vulnerable to this sort of potent combination of climate and wider environmental stresses are those who depend on agriculture. They're the ones um, with a, a sort of a way of life that is Kind of utterly interlinked with that of the wider environment around them. Um, And so the 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 trickier conditions get, the the sort of more their their livelihoods deteriorate. Uh, In in urban areas, it's sort of not always sort of quite as easy to sort of um show the, the sort of full range of ways in which people's lives are being complicated. However, in in a city like Baghdad, we know that kind of sort of worsening, um, ever worsening dust storms are leading to kind of an uptick in respiratory diseases. Um, We know that um, uh, kind of throughout the region, um, uh, crop yields in in some of the kind of more vulnerable agrarian communities are are wobbling as a consequence of of temperatures that are are simply too high for, for many seeds to survive. Uh, on a sort of local level, that translates into sort of um, uh, e- even more diminished um, incomes for for what are already some of the region's most deprived people. Uh, however, on a on a meta level, just to go back to 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 sort of the macro picture for a moment, that translates into sort of deteriorating um, food security at a time when populations are continuing to grow and at a time when when many countries are, Already having to import um, crop staples on on a scale that they can't necessarily afford, so just both to sort of arrow in on individual rural communities and many of the sort of urban areas to which many of them are migrating, and kind of looking at the sort of overall challenges that a that a state must face, uh, kind of providing for 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 their citizens sort of food and water needs, uh, on every one of these spheres, life is is getting more challenging.
0: We'll be right back after a short break. What exactly would a progressive foreign policy look like in the Middle East? The lines of critique are clear. Providing realistic policy proposals is a whole other thing and much more difficult. I'm Dan Benaim, and with my colleagues at the Century Foundation, we're trying to ask and answer the hard policy questions and come up with specific proposals that move the ball forward. You can see our ideas and join the conversation yourself at our website, tcf.org. you're listening to Order from Ashes, I'm Thanasi Kambanis and I'm talking today with Peter Schwartzstein, an independent researcher and a fellow at the Center for Climate and Security and also uh the leader of a recent Century Foundation project on nature and national security uh in the Middle East. Peter, thanks uh, for being with us on the podcast today. Thank you. Uh right right before the the break we were talking about the the sort of scope of this of this of this environmental crisis uh and Next thing I wanted to to ask you about is um, the implications of this. Uh, you know, how does how does this impact? Uh, how does this impact security? How does this impact the the sort of basket of hard uh, hard issues that tend to uh, be more the focus of of policymaker attention?
1: I'm going to I'm going to come out should before um, taking on the the full thrust of your argument with one very small caveat, which is to say that the sort of relationship between environment and security is is an intensely complicated one and and one that certainly sort of merits considerable additional study. Um, However, in in my many years of of reporting on sort of climate and wider environmental security issues in the region, and um, uh, sort of according to the work of of sort of good number of other climate security practitioners, um, there is an an enormous array of ways in which uh, existing security challenges are being exacerbated by uh, the environmental sphere and in which new ones are, are emerging. Um, perhaps the, the single most devastating way in which uh, environment is, is um, contributing to instability is in the ways in which it's sort of exacerbating and accelerating state failure. Uh, as we know, many Middle Eastern states have, have struggled for years to provide for uh, the kind of water and food and housing and uh, job needs of their people. And in uh, making life in kind of Uh, rural areas that bit more difficult by uh, reducing or varying rainfall at a time when sort of alternative water sources are are already scarce. Um, It's just sort of adding to the pressure on um, already sort of limited government administrations. And when you have uh, citizenries that are already um, angry and frustrated uh, and and upset with their sort of... uh, uh, self-interested and sort of inefficient and incompetent rulers, this is the sort of thing that could uh, just prove to be a bridge too far, like a, a, a straw that breaks the camel's back. Um, and then sort of a, a kind of another way that that this is um, contributing to instability is in sort of a way that I've uh, kind of dedicated much of, of my time over the past few years. And that's sort of looking at the ways in which um, kind of particularly desperate and particularly struggling uh, people in rural areas are kind of increasingly um, vulnerable to the sort of intricacies of, of non state armed groups, including jihadists in countries like Syria and Iraq and Sudan. Uh, first of all, we know that the reasons why people would join the likes of ISIS are, are intensely complicated. There are a lot of kind of drivers of, of conflict in the same way that there are a lot of sort of drivers of, of terrorism at large. Um, however, when you have communities, that are kind of uh, already struggling and are struggling that little bit more because of kind of unprecedented drought. Uh, when you have communities that feel rightly or wrongly as if they're receiving sort of even shorter shrift than many of their peers in urban areas, it's the kind of thing that can just contribute to that sort of bundle of, of sort of greed and grievances and wider resentments that, that often do fuel um, the likes of, of ISIS um that's just sort of one one sort of little um sort of tidbit as as to how this this is contributing to instability
0: i mean th- i think this is a really uh, important and hard problem to address because a lot of, i think a lot of the most critical drivers of conflict and and human misery are slow moving forces that are that are you know they're never operating on a time horizon that people with the power to change them, uh, operate on. So, you know, state failure is, is also one of these things where, uh, it's all, it's all sustainable in the short term. Um, and therefore there's, there's literally nobody, uh, in power who's, whose uh, term of, of, office is a hundred years or 50 years. Uh, it's, you know, they're all on four-year terms or, you know, in the case of like, a. uh, gulf monarch maybe uh you know a few decades of or of a lifetime uh monarchy but you know none of them are on are on the time frame of the environment uh and or even of state failure and i do think um you know this is something that that i'd love i'd love your 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 thinking on um it it appears that that these horrors are quite sustainable for quite a long time right i mean living in a living in basra or, or or even you know beirut frankly uh should not be it should not be politically sustainable for the people who run these 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 places uh to so abuse their citizens as to you know pipe them poisoned water or to uh gratuitously pollute their air so that they can't breathe and yet they have done uh in some cases for decades uh with no political consequence, and and uh, and and the people most affected, as you uh, ha- have been mentioning, are also the least uh, politically powerful bloc. Uh, you know they're they're not a constituency that is able to topple governments or even to you know pressure militias to to behave differently and so on uh so what's the sort of where do we get a a, a break a break even point or a catch up point where this kind of predation uh at least the human caused part of this 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 environmental catastrophe you're talking about becomes actually politically costly for its perpetrators um and so would contribute to their overthrow or replacement
1: that's a. I mean, it's a. It's a good question, and there's there's absolutely no easy answer. In that, I mean, it's it's become increasingly fashionable in in the last few years to sort of talk more about or talk up the links between environment and, and, and security. But of course, it's been a phenomenon that's that's been in play for quite some time. Um, Baghdad, for for one, has been growing at the most extraordinary pace uh, in the last 17 years, but even before then. Um, precisely, well, in part, precisely because of those deteriorating conditions in, in agricultural areas. Um, and, and the fact that Baghdad has become this sort of unwieldy, exceedingly complicated city um, is, of course, one of the, the many, many factors that sort of contributes to its its many security woes. Um, so, first of all, I mean, this is just not a new crisis. It's just one that's getting so bad now that it's finally sort of reaching the, the desks of policymakers who who matter both within the region and, and outside um i mean a second sort of re- related point is i mean it's it's extremely difficult to know when the breaking point is because it just it varies a lot from community to community i mean we we talk uh, often in admiring terms about the sort of extraordinary resilience of a lot of the sort of hardest hit communities but it's not as if they necessarily have a choice i mean it's a question of of sinking or swimming um and many of them are dealing with conditions that for a decade or two if not longer have been so environmentally challenging that they would be sort of utterly um, unimaginable for 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 many of us again within the region or, or outside. Um, so I mean I'm, I'm kind of answering or or non sort of answering your question in an extremely circuitous way. All, all of which to say, I I got involved in sort of environmental work in the region precisely because to my mind it it sort of did a better job of telling the story of the region at large than sort of a, a kind of. Supposedly, sort of superficial look at the the general facts would. I mean, why does Iraq have water problems? What well, has water problems for much the same reason that it's got uh, problems across the board? It's sort of corruption, uh, extreme mismanagement, uh, sort of legacy of of, of conflict, um, sort of uh, poor treatment on the part of its neighbours and and perhaps um, countries further afield. Um, so, so this is, as as you said, a, a problem that's been germinating for decades if not longer um, and the, the sort of unfortunate flip side of that is that any solution will have to be grounded in policies that are kind of able to stay the course that are able to endure kind of changes in um, government that are able to endure a tremendous sort of political and, and economic flux um, and that's uh, an unfortunate thing because it's not always easy to, to imagine that
0: you need state capacity in a in a region where state capacity has been eroded for for decades and sometimes maybe fatally uh when I hear you describe these these crises i hear i hear you talking about a lot of them as, as sort of fixable human made uh uh crises and uh and i and i wonder um is your is your sense that you know even a sort of mediocre but somewhat functional state could address uh, some of the some of the basic uh, uh, mistakes that lead to air pollution or that lead to uh, water systems that don't work um, and that and that if uh, governments in the region were able to do this it might not solve the bigger problem of how livable is is southern Iraq in the long term or how livable is upper Egypt uh, but it would go from these things being lethal uh, human catastrophes to being uh, you know problems of discomfort, that can be managed.
1: Certainly. I mean, that's one of the most confounding things about this entire kind of series of of sort of interlinked environmental crises is that so many of them are, are are not only just self-inflicted, but also relatively emphasis on relative uh, relatively easily uh, addressed um, kind of the, it wouldn't take much in the way of time or energy or money to at least somewhat alleviate the the plight of, of farmers in, uh, a lot of the sort of hardest hit regions. I mean, the the money you could spend on, um, uh, kind of reinforcing uh, a farmer's water security or kind of uh, equipping them with kind of tougher, more resilient seeds to survive in in uh, kind of higher heats, uh, is a fraction of the cost um, of kind of dealing with with these people and and equipping and housing and uh, and employing them. Um, when or if they they decamp to these sort of already overwhelmed urban areas, so one we can do sort of a, a very brief sort of back of the paper envelope calculation and and work out that that sort of it's it's kind of very much in the interest of every state in the region to apply sort of manageable sums into this problem. Um, the, the, the unfortunate thing is, that I'm increasingly seeing. Is that a lot of kind of governments in the region have, have realised that sort of climate change again, this sort of like big global phenomenon that is, um, kind of, only marginally the the responsibility of, of of the non sort of Gulf states in the region, um, is sort of making for an increasingly sort of useful foil for many of these governments. So instead of kind of, recognising or addressing. Their own contributions to sort of the increasing um, inhospitability of the environment in many of these countries through worsening air pollution or worsening water pollution. Instead, they're kind of laying the finger or pointing the finger at, at this sort of big kind of global beast uh, which sort of lies well beyond their power to control. Um, so, no, it's it's that's the thing that perhaps has one sort of Shaking one's head in, in in sort of anger and frustration so much of the time is that it it wouldn't take much to make the lives of people that little bit easier.
0: An- another thing that that puzzles me and I'm curious about is are there are there ways to make uh, to make the remediations profitable for the corrupt people who hold power? Uh, so in other words, you know, if you could say instead of appealing to some kind of Moral communitarianism say, hey, you know, local warlord or corrupt ministry official, uh, you could make more money than you're than you're stealing currently if you were to uh, put in place a better uh, water capture uh, system or water distribution system that you could charge people money for, uh, and at the same time fix this problem or, you know, the diesel generators or, you know, any of these, these well-known culprits that are, uh, they're there because people are in part, because people are making money off them. Now, couldn't you help guide them, uh, towards a, you know, an also half good, but better solution where they make money off of something that is, um, that is healthier. Uh, for the, for the community
1: so, I mean what one imagine yes i mean there's there's plenty to be of of money and and plenty of sort of financial opportunities to be had in in climate proofing um however even more than sort of appealing to the personal uh, pocketbooks of of corrupt elites, you can a- sort of appeal to the um Survival instincts of of kind of many of the regimes that preside over over regional states. Um, we already, I mean, in in countries from Iran to Jordan to Egypt, environmental degradation is already emerging as a destabilizing factor. Um, so, were you to be kind of one in the sort of corridors of power in in Cairo or Tehran or beyond, um, you've got a very strong vested interest in, again, making the lives of of, of people who might soon. Uh, pose a problem to you that that little bit easier. The the problem is that many of much of this just sort of plays into the traditional sort of autocratic playbook, which is to sort of um, perhaps has that sort of inclination much of the time to shoot the messenger rather than sort of addressing the root causes of the grievance. Um, and that, in the case of of um, Iranian environmentalists, for example, who've tried to draw attention to. Uh, the country's many sort of water and uh, and, and landscape problems is, is precisely what's happened. Many of the most prominent ones are, are in prison or, or exiled.
0: You're listening to Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's foreign affairs podcast. I'm talking to Peter Schwartstein, who has just produced a uh, major project that looks at the nature and uh, the consequences of, of climate change and natural phenomena on on security in the Middle East. We'll be right back after a short break.
1: Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy.
0: Welcome back. I'm Thanasi uh, Kambanis and I'm talking with Peter Schwartzstein. Uh Peter, let's uh let's turn to what US policy can do. Uh is there a role uh, for American foreign policy in in dealing with this with with this emergency this uh, sort of slow rolling emergency and um how do you get uh, a a sort of uh, uh, an imperial state that is mostly thinking in terms of hard security issues you know its military footprint in the middle east how to manage isis where to put its bases uh how do you get that sort of uh, approach to incorporate the, the kinds of environmental factors that you've just been making a
1: case should be a central part of our understanding and approach. Well, part, part of it is, is appreciating that the, the distinction between environmental security and the sort of, sort of quote unquote, hard security issues is, a, is an artificial one. Uh, environment contributes to or exacerbates practically every one of, of the sort of security issues that do interest sort of policymakers, both in the US and, and further afield. When it comes to sort of internal instability, when it comes to civil wars in in places like Syria, when it comes to to jihadism, the, the links are 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 pretty or increasingly well well documented. Um, so it's not much of a stretch to, to suggest that this is merely a, a continuation or an expansion, uh, just in a sort of savvier way of kind of many of the um, policies that that sort of the likes of the Pentagon already embrace. Um. I'm not sure if you're if you're sort of keen yet for me to to get into kind of what precisely the, the, the U.S. ought to do, but I mean just so much. Do it.
0: This is this is the time. Get into
1: it. I mean, so much of it, and this sounds like <laughs> pretty pathetic and meager at, at a time when kind of millions of people in in the Middle East are already struggling from severe uh, environment and climate stress. But so much is is just like according uh, the environment. The, the degree of of importance that it that it warrants on a rhetorical level uh, that that begins as as uh, as I write in 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 the piece that I very much hope all listeners will read uh, that begins with with sort of U.S. Um, politicians from the president down sort of making it clear that the environment is an issue that they actually care about um, a, a lot of the time the problem in Middle Eastern regional states is rhetorical the ministries of environment tend to be among the absolute weakest of government bodies, if they exist at all. The Iraqi Ministry of Environment was rolled into the Ministry of Health, sort of essentially downgraded a few years back. In Egypt, the Ministry of Environment um, is, is so powerless that kind of according to a number of um, Egyptian civil servant friends, being posted there is sort of akin to, to punishment. Um, uh, so, so part of it is is just like raising it to... To the sort of rhetorical level that that its its severity merits, um, b- beyond that, it, it, this will require sort of tremendous changes within sort of the US's own um, uh, kind of uh, different different sort of uh, development and aid and, and intelligence apparatus. Now, this does not have to be, um, and nor should it be, a, a Middle East specific measure. I mean, as we've seen this year with kind of an enormous array of kind of headline grabbing. Uh, environment and climate crises. Um, this is a phenomenon that is sort of already hitting the US uh, hard um, at home and in the coming years will likely kind of hit even harder. Um, however, kind of increased sort of understanding of uh, and sort of appreciation of the ways in which climate can be a destabilizing factor is um, kind of necessary among among the diplomatic core. Um, and, and then, I mean, avoid, without sort of going into sort of long laundry list of, of, of potential solutions, Perhaps one of the most immediate things the U.S. could do is sort of expanding climate finance opportunities to some of the more cash-strapped governments in the region, while also sort of expanding um, uh, kind of U.S. Uh, assistance in some of the fields where the U.S. excels, sort of um, uh, environmental monitoring, um, kind of the introduction of uh, of kind of crop um, uh, of sort of hydrological tools, um, and, and directing them to the places that they're they're needed most. Um, so yeah, without kind of absolutely revolutionizing um, the U.S. approach to to the region or even its own capabilities, there is an enormous amount that the U.S. could and and should do.
0: Well, so so I read I read sort of maybe this is the uh, the wrong framework, but I read like th- you know three elements to approach. One is the symbolic commitment, um, and it seems like. President-elect Joe Biden, by, you know, naming a climate czar who's a important person, John Kerry, putting them on the National Security Council, it seems well on his way to that first step to saying, like, from my bully pulpit as president, I will put, you know, climate and environment at, at the center of my policy. So, you know, step one, symbolism, that's, you know, seems to be headed in a good direction. Uh, the other two uh, uh, elements of, of a sort of successful shift seem to be uh, attention and money, right? And this is where uh, this is where this is where things know, get The tricky. rubber meets the road, yeah. right? Is is uh, is uh, the Secretary of State when meeting with the the leaders of Iraq going to mention things like water, or will they be too busy talking about ISIS? and the safety of the embassy and the, you know, the top three or four hard security concerns um, to to include this on, on their list. Um, and, and second of all, will there be money, you know, in, in, the, in that limited pot of money to, that, that, that an increasingly inward-looking America has to spend abroad, um, you know, will there be money to spend on these kinds of critical long-term investments that um, might have, few short-term political rewards.
1: Certainly. I mean, as you, as you got on I mean, this is where things get, get difficult. And, um, in consultation with sort of a number of people who are significantly more experienced in the sort of policymaking world than, than I am sort of trying to come up with a number of, of sort of solutions or recommendations that didn't require the U S to sort of stump up a whole bunch of additional cash, because as you say, that's not necessarily forthcoming. Um, however, from, from kind of uh, pushing uh, U.S. partners, including the Europeans, to to pay kind of their part, to redirecting um, uh, kind of existing streams of of, uh, of kind of American assistance, particularly as the environment becomes more salient, th- there is kind of a whole kind of bundle of money out there that is that is potentially tappable. Um h- However, um, just to, to go back to sort of one of the, the questions that you raised. I mean, so much of the kind of um, kind of importance, or or the ability to to actually kind of recognise the uh, importance of the environment, to my mind, comes from um, defence or intelligence or sort of wider government officials making clear that this is not an issue that's a world apart from. Um, Many of the the sort of pre-existing security woes that that sort of already command kind of major attention in in sort of policymakers circles. Uh, if you're kind of heading to to Baghdad, uh, and you're sort of um, keen to sort of talk about the the sort of degree of instability in in Iraq, well, you'd be extremely remiss not to talk about many of the the sort of environmental issues that underlie at least part of the problem. If you're keen to sort of come up with with solutions to the sort of extremely horrible, long-standing mess in Syria. Um, I mean, without kind of o- overplaying, without um, uh, exaggerating the the kind of ways in which drought or, or other environmental problems contributed to uh, to the war in the first place. Y- you need to have a recognition of the ways in which sort of uh, extreme uh, unhappiness in rural Syria uh, c- contributed. To 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 what happened pre 2011, in order to actually come up with sort of concrete solutions for for down the line. Um, So I mean, just it comes so much of this just boils down to sort of time and time and time again, hammering home how like extremely interlinked the environment is with with the issues that that we already deem sort of vital.
0: The, I hope our listeners look at at your project because uh, he's a, if you go to the century foundation's website tcf.org, and look for nature national nature and national security you'll find a series of reports that really uh you know talk at the level that Peter and I' have been talking about today but they also really get down into the weeds about you know civil society you know the jordan river valley uh iraq's water problem so there's there's sort of uh, you know Gaza's uh, uh, water and other environmental woes, uh, and so on. And and it really is it's it's amazing to digest the the sort of big and the small uh, elements of of this problem. When I when I finished reading all these reports, one of the things I took away well, t- two big takeaways I got one was um, that. Without solidarity, we're not going to be able to address this. Like unless, unless we, you know, in rich countries like the United States, think of uh, the Middle East as being just at the cutting edge of a crisis that's also affecting us. So we need to help them figure out how to solve that problem there, so that uh, we can solve it here. Um, that you know that was one big takeaway, um, and the other was that um, uh, maybe it's possible uh, to promote. of climate uh, climate aid or climate intervention as really being uh, a a self-interested venture. So um, I think in some of these reports, you talk about different American technologies that are uh, at the forefront of addressing various environmental crises. Uh, So if you had American companies being funded by the American government to go and do uh, work uh, at the behest of governments in the Middle East, that's not really like sending money to Iraq. That's sending money to an American engineering company um, to do something in Iraq. It's a it's a make work program for the U.S. And, and and I I think I'd like to see a paradigm shift where somehow Americans start to think of these things not just as being like good stewardship of a shared planet in which we feel solidarity, but also these are these things are are to America's benefit. They, you know, they're they're enriching and creating American jobs uh and not just somehow being you know, charity basket case uh, expenditures that are flowing out to this
1: this uh, uh, region in crisis. Absolutely, I mean that that's the point that, that I sort of flicked at, but but perhaps didn't um, t- talk about to to the length that that I uh, sort of at the the length that I likely ought to have in in, in the paper I wrote. It's that this is um, a sort of kind of change of focus or sort of expansion of tack. Uh, that could and should be very much to the U.S. and the Middle East's uh, greater good. For, for the Middle East, this is sort of an, an opportunity to um, receive kind of assistance in, in a field in which it very much needs it. It's not to say that kind of many Middle Eastern states don't possess kind of much of the sort of scientific um, expertise and, and, and excellence that they need. It's just that it's not empowered and much of the time adequately funded. So with that kind of U.S. demand signal coupled with various forms of assistance, this can be um, the sort of effort that can uh, help the region in in an area in which it very very much needs some assistance. And, and for the U.S., this can there's sort of a, perhaps a twofold series of benefits here. One of which is that this is kind of kind of a, a means for the U.S. to sort of get out uh, kind of ahead of the ahead of the shark, like uh, getting out sort of ahead of some of these fast deteriorating environmental issues to sort of incorporate them into like many of its sort of pre-existing um, security concerns instead of sort of continually uh, reacting to to crises when when they're upon washington and, and secondly and this is sort of again more of a rhetorical flourish i mean the us has as far as sort of many people in in the region are concerned kind of horribly sallied its reputation over the last few decades um, and while it's sort of always sort of tricky to to sort of talk in terms of of last chances this might be a relatively rare sort of opportunity for for the u.s to sort of reset the clock and and kind of Reorient its its reputation in much of the region's eyes, because responding to an environmental crisis by its very nature requires uh, tools that go sort of well beyond militaristic ones. Uh, and so this can be sort of an opportunity as as many people, both in Washington and in the region, uh, have been crying out for some time for a sort of a less um, military first and more sort of diplomacy and and uh, sort of technical excellence approach first.
0: Yeah, and the and the real change is going to come when the center of gravity shifts to a point where a, a sizable political majority, uh, it you know believes that this crisis is a crisis and is willing to respond to it. And when when and and if that day comes, I hope it's soon, but I, I fear it might be a few more years away. Then we'll have. Enough momentum to be able to, for example, ratify treaties, uh, so that when we, uh, you know, reenter the, the Paris Climate Accord, it will be actually in the form of a Senate ratified treaty that won't be subject to uh, the changing, you know, whims of, of each administration that comes in. Uh, and you know, we're I think we're getting closer to that, and the, the body of work you have put together here in the Nature and National Security Project uh, goes a long way towards building that case that this is a you know this is an inexorable and global and multifaceted crisis that, that ultimately implicates us all. Uh, for which there are solutions. It's not just uh, the, the the sort of iceberg of climate change bearing down on us that we can't do anything about. It is a you know it's a series of problems that are within human power to uh, to reverse. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to come on our podcast today.
1: Thank you very much for for speaking to me, and I very much hope that all listeners will um read the entire nine part sort of report series that we've we've put together, or at least uh, at least much of it.
0: Right. So you can go to the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org, and navigate to Nature and National Security, and you'll find uh, uh, Peter's recent project. And uh, thanks uh, thanks for listening today. Until until next time, I'm Thanasi Kambanis. This is Order from Ashes, the Century Foundation's International Affairs Podcast. been listening to order from ashes the international affairs podcast from the century foundation if you've enjoyed what you heard please rate us and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts it'll make it easier for other listeners to find us and help us to keep producing these conversations thanks for listening till next time